The writings on the wall. Many things have happened over this past week to make me think about this idea. The writing on the wall. To be honest, I didn't think much about the phrase itself. But the idea behind it just seemed to keep coming up. The writing is on the wall. When one thing ends and another begins, it can be easy to look back and recognize how one thing led to another. How we got ourselves from there to here. Why it was that this certain conclusion was reached. What reasons led to the decline. Much of our lives can be spent looking back. Thinking about how things could have been. Thinking about how things should have been. Wondering how things would be different if we had just done this differently or done that instead. Maybe we were too busy looking forward to recognize the fault lines that were growing beneath us. Our eyes were too fixed on a point somewhere ahead that we stopped paying, paying attention to what was happening around us. Our minds, our hearts were too occupied to notice. The writing on the wall. Sometimes we don't know what it means. We sincerely are at a loss as to why it's there. Was it something I've done? Was it something I said? Perhaps something I didn't do? Perhaps something I didn't say? What can I do about it now? We're left wondering. How much longer do we have? The end is approaching, but how long is it going to take to get here? What should I be doing to prepare for it? Is there any way to make it slow down? Any way to make it stop altogether? In one sense, death is a natural part of life. Sure, we know it wasn't always meant to be this way, but it is this way. This is the world we live in, the circle of life, as it were. Some things we just need to accept. What hope is there at this point? On to the next thing. It's a nagging that won't go away, a subtle inclination that something just ain't quite right. A door slammed, plumb, shut in our face. History repeating itself. We can't change the way that the world works. The handwriting. In bold print, underlined, italicized, magnified, centered, black on white. When our eyes finally begin to grasp what may have been there all along, when we start to hear the whispers... When the whispers begin to turn into shouts, our hearts become heavy. The weight begins to bear down upon us. Is this really happening? Am I the one to blame? Is this all part of the plan? The pain of anticipated loss may be greater than the pain of the loss itself. At least when it happens, we no longer have to wonder if it's really true, if there really was no way out. No alternate ending. All good things must come to an end. But was it really good to begin with? What comes next is what we really want to know. Perhaps trying to change the past is only trumped in futility by seeking to predict the future. Do we spend so much time reflecting and planning that we're missing out on the moment itself? We're told to be a people who live by faith. But our hearts are so full of faithlessness that we're drowning in our own despair. Am I the one reading the handwriting? Or am I the one writing it? Maybe we've been given the writing on the wall because we failed to read the writing that was on our own hearts.
which leads us to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5. I'm going to read the whole chapter and we'll come back and talk about it. Daniel chapter 5. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, And his spirit was hardened, so that he dealt proudly. He was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, 
until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Many years ago, I was playing peekaboo with a little child. It was around dinner time. They were in a high chair. We were doing it for a minute, and then I disappeared. So they were looking for me. I popped up real fast in front of the kid. And it startled the child so much that their bowels immediately released and the diaper gathered the aftermath. Sometimes a similar reaction is dramatized in war movies. When the soldier is so scared by the prospect of what's about to happen that he wets himself. In our story, there is a stark contrast displayed for us. The king is literally commanding himself and everyone else at this huge party to get drunk. There's no need to fear. Don't worry about what's happening on the outside. Eat, drink, be merry. Our cognitive senses aren't required in this moment. The ability to rationalize and reason are unnecessary right now. Have fun. Do what you want. Forget about all your troubles. Then all of a sudden the air gets sucked out of the room. It goes from party to poltergeist. The king himself is so immediately distressed that he soils himself. I mean, talk about a change of scene. This is actually what most people, I would say, many commentators think happens whenever it says, when his knees knock together, really literally it talks about his loins giving way. They really think that he went from being high and mighty and drunk and happy to wetting himself. When we casually read this story, it's easy to miss the underlying tone of the situation and the tone of the characters. At the end of the story, we're told that on that very night, the king is killed and Darius the Mede receives the kingdom. That could only be the case if Darius's army was already outside the walls of Babylon, besieging it and preparing to attack it when Belshazzar throws this feast. Belshazzar's father, Nabonidus, 
had already been defeated many miles away. Certainly, the crown prince knew of that defeat. Certainly, the son knew the strength of the army camped outside his own walls of his great city. But in a show of defiance, a mix of laissez-faire and hubris, he just continues to go about business as normal. No one can stop me. I have nothing to fear, he says to himself and to his thousand guests. So when we read the ending and then go back again and consider the situation as it was, we're made even more aware of Belshazzar's folly. And it's not just the ending that magnifies the king's imprudence. Throughout the Old Testament, it's exemplified that many older people are full of wisdom. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, he had a wealthy and peaceful kingdom handed to him. But the people of Israel were worn out. Peace had come at a price. Pleasure had cost them blood and sweat and years of service. They needed a reprieve, a break. Solomon's reign had been prosperous, but the people were tired. So they asked this new king, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, for a break. We'll serve you, honor you, but we just can't keep up at this pace. And the king says, okay, give me a few days to think about it. So he summons the elders who had served under his father, who had served Israel for many years. He asks for their counsel, and they say, Listen to the people. The people will be loyal to you, but as king, you've got to meet them where they are and not expect more out of them than they're willing or able to give right now. Then Rehoboam summons his friends, the young men he's grown up with, and they say, Stick it to them. The people are just trying to pull the wool over your eyes. Don't listen to them. In fact, Make it harder on them than they've already yet experienced. The wisdom of time, of experience, of perspective, of seeking after the Lord and seeking the good of his people. So who did Rehoboam listen to? Who would you have listened to? Well, he listened to the young guys, his peers, the ones who are most likely to benefit from the hard work of the common man. And it didn't take long at all for the kingdom to be split into two. Solomon literally wrote a book for his son, a book of wise sayings, Proverbs. Yet in his first substantial act as king, the son discards a reliable source of wisdom. He doesn't seek it from the Lord. He doesn't seek it from those whose hearts are loyal to the Lord. Proverbs twenty twenty nine says, The glory of young men is their strength, but the splendor of old men is their gray hair. Proverbs sixteen thirty one says, Gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. Job twelve twelve says, Wisdom is with the aged and understanding in length of days. Those who have seen a lot tend to know a lot. They fought the battles. They've lived through struggles. They tend to have a longer perspective, a wider scope. They've seen novelties come and go. 
When put to it, they're able to recognize the patterns, see the causes and effects from past experiences. The famous quote goes something like, the only thing we learn from history is that we don't learn from history. But that's not entirely true. There are some who do, some who have learned, some who have paid attention. And back in our story, that person is represented in the Queen Mother. Notice her tone. Notice how she enters the scene. She comes in at verse 10. But this is after King Belshazzar has already consulted with the wise men, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. They were unable to help the king. Their knowledge and insight, if they really had any at all, which I'm not sure they really did when you read chapters 1 through 4, were no good in this situation. All along, the queen mother is just standing on the sidelines, listening in the other room, watching the train wreck unfold before her. She isn't even summoned by the king, but she can't stay quiet any longer. In the middle of verse 10, the queen declared, O king, live forever, but let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. She's, she's saying, look, haven't you read Daniel chapters 1 through 4? Haven't you been told the stories of this Daniel? Did, did you not pay attention in your private tutoring to the history of your own kingdom? Her tone is one of rebuke, not just giving information. In verse 11, verse 11 alone, four times Nebuchadnezzar is mentioned. It says, your father. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar. And then it says, your father. And again says, your father, the king. Nebuchadnezzar knew what was up. We saw that last week. It took him some mistakes. It cost him some years of his life. But he woke up to the reality of the situation. He learned. I learned. Have, have you seriously not learned? Has your arrogance so blinded you that you haven't even considered this Daniel? Now, some people are just naturally more skeptical than others. Maybe you were burned too early and too often that naturally you question everything. Or perhaps you just simply assume that you know better than everyone else. You think you're above them and above it all. The Queen Mother gives this profound introduction, or maybe really a reminder of who this Daniel is. She says, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. Your father made him chief of all the people you just brought in before you because he possesses an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding to interpret dreams. He can explain riddles and he can solve problems. Her tone is a tone of rebuke toward the king, but of praise toward Daniel. And what is the king's tone in response Verse 13 says, Then Daniel was brought in before the king. 
The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. So, stop right there for a second. To his face, he describes Daniel as simply that exile from Judah, that slave, that conquered man from a conquered people. It's like he only brought Daniel in because his grandma made him. Down in verse 16, he continues, but, but I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can. He says, if you can. I don't really think you can, but I'll give you a chance. Even after the bold confession from the queen mother, he still isn't really listening. In reading and studying chapters 4 and 5 back to back here, it makes me curious as to why Nebuchadnezzar was given a second chance, but Belshazzar wasn't. Nebuchadnezzar was humiliated and became like an animal for seven years. But he was allowed to be humbled to the point of recognition, to the point of redemption. His throne was taken from him, but it was given back. Here in chapter 5, the ending is different. Look at verse 21. It says, He was driven from among the children of mankind, speaking of Nebuchadnezzar, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, Though you knew all this, Daniel says to the king, Nebuchadnezzar had to live through all of that, but all you had to do was learn from it. He had to live it. All you had to do was learn from it. And you did not. You failed. You've been weighed. You've been measured. And you have been found wanting. Your kingdom will be taken away from you. The writing is on the wall. There was one man who saw the writing on the wall before anyone else really could. He even told his disciples, look guys, I'm going to Jerusalem. For this purpose, I have been sent. For this purpose, I have come. I'm going to give myself up. I'm going to be beaten, killed, the handwriting's on the wall. And that's what we celebrate this week as Christians. That Christ willingly came and faced that writing. He was actually the one who wrote it. The cross was before him. And he took it like a man. He didn't soil himself. But he did suffer. He wasn't caught off guard. But he was abandoned. There was a greater reward, a a greater calling, a greater purpose, and he accomplished it. Not by saving himself, but by dying. His death for us means life. The lack of mercy shown to him means everlasting mercy to us. This is the gospel that we believe This is the gospel that we proclaim. 
And it is available to each one of us through faith in Jesus and repentance from sin to God. For us, the writing is on the wall. We will all stand in judgment before God. Those whose pride keeps them from submitting to the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ will face eternal punishment. And those who accept God's mercy in Christ will give an account for how we lived in that mercy. The comparison and contrast between chapters 4 and 5 in Daniel should serve as vivid examples to us of the sovereignty and mercy of God. God's mercy extends to all, but not everyone recognizes it or accepts it. As we stop and reflect, do we acknowledge that it is only God's mercy that we can attribute to the good in our lives? For many of us, there is much externally to boast of. From the world's perspective, and even from history's perspective, we are blessed. We have been given much. There's more information at our fingertips than could even be imagined 200 or 2,000 years ago. There is more opportunity and freedom, more pleasure, more comfort, more stability. So the two questions that I pray we'll consider this week are these. Do we give proper recognition to our true source of mercy? Do we give proper recognition to our true source of mercy? Belshazzar the king wanted nothing to do with God. He wanted nothing to do with God's chosen man in the time. He was arrogant, proud. He didn't need mercy. He didn't want mercy. Do we give proper recognition to our true source of mercy? And the second question is, how are we utilizing the mercy we have been given? Daniel, once again, is in a situation where he didn't have to respond the way that he did. He didn't have to extend mercy to the king. Clearly, this king, or this crown prince, as it were, cared nothing for Daniel. Didn't care of the history with his grandfather. Didn't care for what he had done in the past. But Daniel chose to be a man of peace as much as it depended on him and as much as he could bring, as much as he could bring peace. How are we utilizing the mercy that we have been given? We are not Daniel. We are not Christ. But we have been called to be like Christ. We have been called to show mercy. 
where maybe we would be the only ones to be able to give it in that situation, like Daniel was here in chapter 5. We've been put in each of our own situations. But how are we utilizing the mercy that we have been given? Would God find us faithful right now, today and this week? I pray that we'll consider these things this week as we celebrate the mercy that we received at his expense. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for another story that helps us to see that you are in control and that what you desire to happen happens. That you are in control of all things, of all situations. You raise up kings and you pull them down. You humble the proud and you exalt the humble. God, I pray that you would find in us spirits that are humble, that have recognized the mercy that you have extended to us, that we have received it, and that we live in light of that mercy. Help us this week to be a people who extend that mercy beyond our own selves into the lives and situations that you have put us in. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.